When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And we are now on episode number 40. Woo! Pop the champers. <laughs> now, of course, every week on this show, uh, we do bring you the biggest guests as well. And for our 40th, we make no secret of the fact that we are huge fans of the Commodore Amiga. Yeah, and did you know it's still going on? They're still making hardware and software for it. Considering the Amiga hasn't been sold commercially for, like, what, 20 years? Yeah. <laughs> and now, on the show this week, we've got a good friend of ours, and I think it's fair to call this guy Mr. Amiga. Yeah, or Mr. Boing. <laughs> He's uh, Trevor Dickinson. Now, Trevor is actually one of probably the biggest Amiga fan we've ever met. He's got every model of the Amiga pretty much um, in a room in his house. He dedicates to the Amiga and even wanted new Amiga hardware that badly when there was none on sale. He set up his own company and started making it himself. Yep, and he's also got a very close relationship with the biggest Amiga retailer. Yeah, there is an Amiga retailer, Amiga kit, and they actually make a full-time living out of doing it still. It's crazy. So we're going to be catching up with Trevor Dickinson. He's this week's special guest on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. And of course, this weekend, it's play weekend. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be wicked. Any CD32 games are going to be gone. I'm going to sweep them all up. <laughs> Now, we're going to be down there this weekend. It's um, over in Manchester, like it has been the last couple of years. We're there on Sunday this weekend. So if you're coming down, um, we'll pop a few posts on our Facebook page and Twitter of uh, whereabouts we are. And you know, Yeah, you'll probably <laughs> hear us playing some games or creating loads of noise somewhere. So just pop along and say hi. Now, we have been running a competition on the show over the last couple of weeks. And it was for the Commodore 64 Visual Compendium Books by yes. uh, Bitmap Books. Uh, ran it for two weeks, had about 160 entries in the end. It's really good. Thanks, guys. You amazed us. And all your kind comments on the uh, entries have been great. Absolutely. So it's time to announce the winners. Got to say congratulations to Paul Simmons and Sean Strobel. Yeah! Amazing. So we're going to get those sent off, and you should probably be getting them by this weekend. Yeah, and it, well, at least in the next seven days, by the time we get them in the post, we'll uh, get those out to you. Congratulations, guys. And of course, we'll have more competitions in future episodes of the Retro Hour. And uh, while you're on our web- website, theretrohour.com, we do have a little donation button on there as well. Any uh, you know, little tips towards the show that all go into the running of it are always gratefully appreciated. Yeah, and we'd like to thank free donators this week. So that's Francisco Meza, Stelios Calagrids, and Simon Pilgrim. All your donations are massively appreciated, guys, and it all goes back into the running of the show. And, of course, we have got that PayPal link on the front page of the retrohour.com. Totally. And we've got one more little shout-out, which is to Lee B, who messaged us saying his family listens to us every week in Birmingham. That's, That's... awesome. His entire family listened to the Retro Hour. That's so cool, like uh, a family activity. So, big shout to the Beat family. Hope it's not under duress. Dad, turn that boring old game show off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but thank you for checking out the show, guys. We do really appreciate that. Now, before we get into this week's chat with Trevor Dickinson, some big news stories this week. And obviously, we had that one, um, you know, it's kind of a bit of an Amiga special this week. We had that story about um, there was an old Amiga 2000 that was powering a school's heating system. Yeah. Do you remember that that was everywhere about a year ago? Yeah, these old machines still doing things. Which I think is really cool. I mean, you know, you buy a machine to do a task, and if it can continue doing it for like 20, 30 years, 
Well, good value for money, isn't it? <laughs> now, this um, is actually trending on Facebook. Amazing. Over the weekend, wasn't it? A Commodore 64 is still in daily operation in a garage, and it has been for around 25 years in a car workshop. Yeah, and this is for for balancing the cars, right? I, I don't get how this works. Well, I mean, looking at these pictures, it's um, a shop in Poland, an auto repair centre, and obviously they're using it for, you know, inputting data and that kind of thing by the looks of it. But it is a Commodore 64C. That was the uh, the one that came out around 1987, I think it was, the later one. Yeah. That looked a bit like, a, you know, 128 and an Amiga 500. And it's there with its clunky old um, five and a quarter inch floppy drive. And everyone who's commented on this always says the same thing. It looks like something out of Fallout. Yeah, it looks like something out of Fallout also because it's had all these oily hands all over it for these years. It's looking a bit grubby, isn't it? Yeah. And um, there's actually an article here on geek.com, the website that we found it on. And um, there's been a few interviews done with the guys who use this machine. So I think it was originally posted to a Commodore 64 group on Facebook. And the guy that did it actually spoke a bit about why the user and, you know, what's happened to this machine. And looking at it, obviously, it's at work in an auto garage. Guys have come out with grubby fingers typing on that keyboard for 25 years. Apparently there's been a leak in the roof. It's been rained on. There's a window open and some birds went by and uh, did some stuff on it. Yeah, apparently there's bird crap all over the keyboard <laughs> as well. But it's still ticking away. Yeah, yeah, it still works. Built to last, definitely. Exactly. Probably still be there in another 25 years, I think, won't it? Yeah. Now, uh, moving on, we have some Nintendo news this week. Now, we've been talking about these uh, remakes of the Nintendo Entertainment System over the last couple of weeks. There's another one. Well, well. firstly, did you see the video? The new Nintendo promotion video no. that they released yesterday. It was amazing. It was in an 80s style, synthesizers going on it right. straight away. Not something that you'd expect from Nintendo. And at the end, they had one of their old like logos, like Feel the Power or something like that. And they had the interface for the new Nintendo Mini. Okay. And... You can have save states in it, so you can save four different states in some of the games and then return to them, and it's really like a nice interface. Is this on that new NES that they're bringing out then? Um, yeah. Is it a promotion for that? Okay. Yeah, so this is the Japanese version that's going to be coming out. Now, obviously, the Japanese version, they didn't have a NES, it was called the Famicom over there, wasn't it? And it yeah, looked the, different. the family computer. <laughs> and the... So what they're doing is they're making a mini version for Japan that looks like the, the Famicom. Yeah, so you're going to have these two mini versions. You're going to have a Western one, you're going to have a Japan one, and they're both going to have 30 games on them. Probably have the same interface, but they've also got good, good features like, um, you know, CRT mode. They've got it so you can do 4 by 3 instead of widescreen. All these selections you can make within the game, so it's totally for your retro experience. I think it's awesome that they've made a custom version for that market as well, though. I've never actually um, played on one of the Japanese ones. I never thought they looked quite as nice as the ones that came out in the West, but I know they're very quirky. Even I'm looking at the detail here as well. You know, on that, on the, on the original Famicom, yeah. the controllers were wired to it, and it is on this little one here by the looks of it as well. <laughs> well. Well, this one's also got a lot of the Japanese titles, but guessing that it's, you know, HDMI, you could probably just use this on the UK system. There won't be any of that NTSC PAL yeah. rubbish that you used to get. And there is apparently a slightly different games list on this one too. Um, they've got stuff like Final Fantasy III and Mario Club Golf. Yee Kung Fu as well, which is um, an exclusive to this. Well, Rockman as well, which is Mega Man in brackets. You know, that's a bit I still like Yee Kung Fu, though. That was a pretty good game. I think that was, uh, it was like kind of like international karate, but not quite as good. Okay. I said that in the Commodore um, Plus 4, but yeah. It's cool that, you know, you can actually, I mean, for hardcore Nintendo fans, you probably want to collect both. Mm. 
and they have them in your collection. But yeah, it's really cool that they're actually paying that much attention to their legacy and really doing this properly. Totally. And, you know, if even if you watch this ad- advert, it's just amazing. You know, the advert's like so old school. I recommend everyone watch that and then look at the details of this Japanese one and they'll just love it. <laughs> Retro's so big again now. Yeah, yeah, but they have seem to have really taken it. Even with the sounds, it sounds like Depeche Mode at the beginning or something. It's like amazing. <laughs> so if you want to find out more about this um, this new Famicom, the mini one, we'll pop that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, obviously, we're well into October now. Yep. Dark nights, you know, we came in about 7 o'clock tonight, it was already pitch black outside. I've got a cold, as you can tell, and Dan's well. dying. Yeah. <laughs> and it is The Apprentice back on the TV. The Apprentice is back, but we all know where the roots of The Apprentice came from, and that was Amstrad Computers. Now, l- little did you know, Nick Hewer, mm-hmm. who used to be on The Apprentice... Uh, countdown one... now, isn't he? Yeah, he's on Countdown now. He was actually the main PR man during the height and the growth of Amstrad. And he's saying, you know, Amstrad could have been bigger than Apple. His direct quote is, we had a turnaround of 1 billion and profits of 160 million. We had distributors in North America and the Far East. We were poised. So they were ready, basically, to go big style all over the world by the looks of it then. And it's because, you know, we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, that Amstrad, they had success in the UK, but really the machine was... You know, the CPC-464 and that, it actually had a lot of success overseas as well, considering they're a British company. Yeah, so, you know, the PC revolution was about to begin, they say, and they had loads of different companies coming in there, loads of different clones. So Amstrad wanted to come in with their clone into the North American market and take all these markets. Mm -hmm. But what happened was they had a little problem with their hard drives and they ended up having to recall a lot of these machines that they just released, PC-2000s, they were... Uh, the hard drives provided by Seagate and Western Digital. <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> Nothing's changed, no. <laughs> So basically, they completely screwed themselves because they had to sue Seagate and that made them look really bad suing their own hard drive distributors and the whole thing kind of came tumbling down. But also, it's very interesting, he's talking about how Alan Sugar was a great marketeer and in 1993, they launched the pen pad I remember that thing. Was that, that was like an Apple Newton, wasn't it? It was a the week PDA. before the Newton that they actually released it at the Science Museum. Interesting. So I do remember seeing those on sale or alongside the Newton. And I kind of, at the time, I assumed it was like Amstrad ripping off Apple. But yeah, if it came no. out before it, you know, that's, uh, what if they had some kind of inside kind of so, Some inside or... <laughs> info, yeah. Because those were those handwriting devices that never really worked, did they? <laughs> yeah, there was that market. They were kind of like pre kind of PDAs, weren't they? You know, in the early 90s. And I do remember looking, you know, a bit more about the pen pad. It was, you know, they had like skeuomorphism, they call it, don't they? Yeah. So you'd open the, um, the applications, it, it looked like a fake kind of, you know, file of facts. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing on it. But it, from what I remember, I haven't used one for a long time, but I do remember being quite impressed um, you know, when I originally tried that machine out. I think it actually did work a bit better than the Newton, from what I remember. It's been yeah. a long time since I used it. But Amstrad were, they were quite innovative, though, because they also did the, remember the Mega PC they did? Yeah, yeah. And then, well, what happened was basically Alan Sugar obviously got really dismayed by all of this and just went into the satellite business, which was a, quite a smart move, actually, and sold it to B-Sky-B to use for all the technology for that. But he also did a few silly things like the emailer, 
Yeah. <laughs> in between that, if I remember, you remember that. <laughs> it was like a, a video phone thing you did as well that I remember playing with in like a BT shop and like, you know, it was uh, wasn't quite to the level of FaceTime. I think it was like, you know, 16 colours and like like CGA quality, but you could, you could call people across the room in the early 90s with it. Yeah, I always see them at car boot sales. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't even take off when they originally came out. No. But I think, you know, it's testament to... The braveness they had to try these new products when they were kind of untested. The market then, you know, no one had really done these kind of products before. And for a British company to kind of be one of the first in the world for doing them is pretty cool, I think. Yeah, totally. So what could have been, though, eh? What could have been? <laughs> now, um, speaking of things it could have been, imagine Walker. Do you remember that game on Walk- the Amiga? Walker was really cool. You, It was like the first game where I used a keyboard and a mouse at the same time, actually, yeah. to control him left and right and then... Mouse to aim. And you played this walker that, you know, it, it went along. You had to shoot these little guys and stuff on the floor. It was, you know, a really cool game. But... Well, this was what they were saying. Lemmings was uh, kind of, the walker image was made before the lemmings were made, you know. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're very closely connected. Well, that game obviously came out on a few platforms. Um, the ZX Spectrum wasn't one of them, though. <laughs> Who keeps doing this, just releasing, like, (laughs) wicked games for the Spectrum? It's great. Well, it's coming now. Um, Yeah, the Amiga Blaster Classic Walker has been demoed on the ZX Spectrum. Now, what actually stuns me, I mean, we mentioned, you know, Defender of the Crown has been, uh, you know, ported to the Spectrum. And I read, there's only about 50 copies of that they're releasing, apparently. It's going to be really super rare, Defender of the Crown. Um, But there is uh, a little demo video of Walker running on a Spectrum. Now, as you'd expect... Um, the Speccy didn't have loads of colours. So no, no. it's like, you know, it's pretty much all blue. But they've captured all of the essence of the game and the animation looks so fluid. Yeah, to the point that they've even got people standing on the buildings and stuff. And this is a Russian coders called Alien Factory that have released this. So at the moment, it's a, it's a one-man project, apparently. It's been in development for a long time. But, you know, I'm not really sure whether it's going to actually come out or whether it's just a demo at the moment. I mean, I think looking at this, providing it's not just like a scrolling demo, this could possibly be the most visually impressive game that has ever been released on the Spectrum. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. And I keep getting blown away by these Specky games. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, because if people could use these machines the way they can now, when they originally came out, it would have blown your mind, wouldn't it? I mean, even looking at this here... It, it is pretty much the Amiga game, just downgraded in colours. Yeah, if you kind of had a time machine and went back <laughs> and then put it in someone's spectrum, they would have probably pooed themselves or yeah. something. I'm pooing myself now, looking at it. So if you want to check that video out, we'll stick that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Um, speaking of another old platform, I know this is one of your favourites. Oh, I just love the visuals of it. <laughs> the Vectrex is getting a new game. Oh, wow. And this is a diving game. Underwater scuba style. Well, I'm not sure how big the Vectrex library is. Because I know it wasn't a massively popular system, was it? No, but I've only ever played them at kind of retro shows. I've never I've never seen big Vectrex collections or anything like that. I've got the impression they were bigger in America than they were over here. But yeah, same here. I've only ever seen them like, when we go to retro shows. There's always one somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Every retro gaming event we've been to. Uh, but this is actually, it's a one-man project. Um, a guy called Chris Parsons. And this game is called Big Blue. And uh, essentially, yeah, it's a diving game. You've got to, you know, dodge the deadly sharks that are in there as well. It's these really cool kind of unique vector graphics that this system is famous for. Um, but it's not just one of these games that, you know, they're, they're putting out there kind of homebrew style. It's actually releasing this in like a proper printed box. It comes with uh, a screen overlay, a cartridge. Oh, that, oh all cool. Up. Wow. So That's really good. This essentially looks like, you know, a brand new Vectrex commercial game. And they're releasing it at just 35 quid as well. That's really cheap, especially with a cart and the 
manual and you know the overlay that's crazy yeah the vectrex system itself is quite a bit more than that but yeah <laughs> if you have got one if you're looking enough to own one it's cool that a new vectrex game is coming out in 2016 though isn't it well i saw a, a really good thing on Techmoan actually which was he was looking at this laser projector which projects you know laser displays for like dancers and reacts to music and he was saying what if you could get a vectrex emulator on one of these fat laser projectors. Oh, wow, yeah. Imagine having a Vectrex on the side of a building. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching, funnily enough, you know, being that it's this time of year and all that, there's an episode of Bad Influence, you know, the old gaming show from yeah. the 90s. They're all on YouTube. And there's an episode of that where they actually do a bonfire night display using lasers on bonfire night, you know, oh, in wow. the early 90s. And I think there's, like, some uh, like early 90s dance group are, like, performing to it or something <laughs> as well. So, yeah, that made me think of that. They'd be cool to do, like, a laser show with a Vectrex emulator. Oh, yeah, it'd be great. Well, now we have an amazing story here. A lot of people don't know about this, but the first computer-generated music was actually made in the UK, not in America. They said it was made by Bell Labs. Mm-hmm. Was that the yeah? The story is Bell Labs. That's yeah, yeah, that's actually an urban myth. They've just proved. Uh, Alan Turing created uh, a loudspeaker which emitted short pulses of sound called a hooter. <laughs> and, right. uh, He'd basically been using it with one of his old computers and somebody came in, uh, Christopher Strassi, a school teacher and a pianist who had interest in computers and he sat in front of this machine and kind of spent all night programming it. He made the first kind of computer notes and put them onto an acetate disc. And this was in 1951? Yeah, in 1951 and I've actually got the recording here. It's the British National Anthem. So this is the first digitised computer sound. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, it's kind of like a typewriter. (laughs) It reminds me of, you know, those um, videos on YouTube when people make floppy disks, like do the Star Wars theme and all that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally like that, yeah. (laughs) But basically, uh, the computer doesn't exist anymore. Okay. But the disk that was cut by the technicians actually exists, so they've been able to extract the music from that. So they've restored these, and now they're in the British Library, apparently. Yeah. yeah, That's pretty cool, isn't it? The fact that people were using computers in creative ways as early as, like, 1951... Yeah, it's pretty and, and kind of programming early mods or yeah. <laughs> early tunes. <laughs> like it was pretty much, isn't it? Yeah. That's where it all came from, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, we'll put these videos, if you uh, if you can take sitting through those, for uh, how many is it? There's quite a few of them, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot. If, if you look on the uh, British Museum's site. Yeah, we'll pop all those in our show notes yeah. at theretrohour.com as well. So that has been episode number 40. Wow. And if you are coming down to play in Manchester over the weekend, we'll be down there pretty much all day on Sunday. Uh, come and find us and say hi and try and stop Ravi from spending all his money on a Vectrex. Yeah, Vectrex <laughs> and CD32. <laughs> and of course, you can get the show again next Friday. We'll be out with a little look back at play, no doubt, as well. And also, we've got a very special guest next week that we'll, we'll uh, reveal a bit more yeah, about. Yeah, so, something we haven't done before, actually. A uh, system uh, that's massive that we haven't really covered a lot. Yeah, probably the biggest. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll tell you more about that next week. We'll be out again next Friday on your favourite podcast client, iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, YouTube, and of course on our website, theretrohour.com. Right then, time for this week's special guest Trevor Dickinson, Mr. Amiga, and we'll catch you again next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time for this week's special guest. Welcome to the show, Trevor Dickinson. Hello. 
Thanks for joining us this week, Trevor. Now, uh, you are Mr. Amiga. And, uh, you know, Ravi and I both love the Amiga. So we, we thought it'd be quite nice to, uh, you know, do a bit reminiscing with you and also find out about your, uh, your current work with the Amiga as well. But let's go all the way back to the beginning, Trevor. What was your first ever experience with a computer? Well, it was at university. I got to look through a window at these massive machines that were in environmentally controlled rooms. And my nose was pressed up against the glass. I was a, I was a scientist. And, uh, they decided to teach us programming, which meant uh, filling out some program forms, giving those forms to a uh, punch card operator, and get the, getting the errors back a week later. So that was my first introduction to computing. Did you take to it straight away then? Did you find it really interesting then, or did it take a while? Uh, no, actually, you know, to be honest, as, as a geologist, as I was training at the time, geology and chemistry, that was it. I didn't really get to see any computers. Mm-hmm. I got to convert Fahrenheit to centigrade and pounds to kilograms. <laughs> and then uh, as, a, as a young geologist, I started working offshore. It just so happened that we were a small company and we were growing very fast. And we started to computerize our offshore services for uh, engineering, safety, uh, drilling engineering, um, and geology. And no one had any experience in the company at, you know, at any of these uh, types of services. Mm-hmm. So I got involved quite early on in, in the, the computerization. And computers in those days were, were the, really the desktop calculators, big desktop calculators, very expensive. Uh, cassette tape uh, programmed in a sort, of, um, either a, a, a sort of HP basic, I think it was, it was called, mm-hmm. or registers, programmed in registers. So that was my first introduction to, you know, I would say, real computing. So obviously that's just before like the microcomputer boom. Um, but when did you get your first machine at home then and why? <laughs> you know, sometimes you get promoted to jobs you can't do. Right. It's <laughs> happened, happened to me quite a lot, really. We've had a few of them. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'd gone from the HP desktops, I call them desktop calculators, to uh, mini computers, uh, DEC, digital PDP 1103s, 1123 mini computers. And um, I was put in charge of the hardware and software development team. And what did I know about computers, really? So I decided to um, buy myself a ZX80 and build it myself. Mm-hmm. I had a massive 1K of memory. But my uh, hardware engineer said, look, Trevor, that's not really a good computer. You know, you're not going to learn much with that. Why don't you get a Commodore PET? So that's how it started. I got myself a Commodore PET 4032. Probably 1979. You, you, you kind of stayed with the Commodore world then, I guess? Well, I guess I got sucked in, didn't I? So um, Commodore Pet, you know, I, I taught myself the usual things, you know, basic uh, machine code programming, peaks and pokes, all those you know, clever things we did on Commodores in those days. And, it, and there were no home computers, you got to remember. And I feel like, you know, the, the good old boy saying, oh, back in my day, sonny. <laughs> but back in my day, sonny, there were no home computers. And it, it was really rare to have home computing. So you were at the forefront of, of the evolving microcomputer technology, even with a Commodore PET, which was probably one of the leading micros at the time. And of course, games has a, obviously has a big impact on the, the deployment of um, micros and home computers. I saw um, international soccer uh, playing on a Commodore 64. And it's the first time I'd seen you know, animation, sound, graphics, very rudimentary by today's standards, but back then it was unbelievable. So I just had to have that Commodore 64. So when you got your C64 then, was it mainly gaming and coding you were doing then or were you using it for other kind of stuff as well? Uh, I was I, I was actually online. So I was online back in 1982. That's when I got my... 
uh, Commodore 64. So we had, we had uh, online, well, obviously the bulletin board services, which were quite prominent at the time. But I was into Micronet mm-hmm. in the UK and then CompuNet. And uh, <laughs> started off with a, I think it was a 300 board modem, then a 1200 board modem, which I thought I was, you know, I was really swinging now. And so um, for me, being online was quite normal, except that in those days, you dialed up, you got all those funny handshaking noises that took forever and usually failed. You got online for about 30 seconds, downloaded what you want, then went offline. Because unlike today, you know, telecom charges were really expensive. Would that be with an acoustic coupler phone? Uh, it actually wasn't. It was with a plug-in uh, modem that plugged into the back of the uh, 64. But, you know, at work, a few years earlier, we did use acoustic couplers uh, to do a demo from our offices on the west coast of Scotland up to uh, the uh, the company we were trying to sell to up in uh, Glasgow. And we used acoustic, acoustic couplers at 300 board to uh, transmit the data. Now, those early days of being online, though, I mean, calling bulletin boards and that kind of thing as well, did it feel like a real kind of underground community then? Ah, oh, you felt like, again, you were, you were like uh, the, uh, the forefront of, of, of technology, really, you know, home technology. And again, you're probably too young to know of teletext and CFAX. It would slowly, you know, go across the screen. Well, you know, updating a, a, a semi-graphical display on a Commodore 64 1200 board was very similar. <laughs> well, uh, when was the first time that you uh, saw an Amiga? Uh, right. Well, I'd, I'd uh, you know, we progressed through the company and uh, I'd been transferred to the States to live in Houston, in Texas. And um, when I got to, uh, by that time, I had a Commodore 128. But um, the power supply really wasn't suited to the States. So I, I, being a good brother, I gave it to my younger brother uh, to use. And uh, when I got to the States, I brought a Commodore 128D, you know, the metal case one. And I was happy with that. And uh, I progressed to using, is it Geos? The, um, oh, the GUI for it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I eventually managed to, and they were like hen's teeth at the time, the 256 uh, kbyte RAM expansion unit. Uh, which made Geos very usable. And I, I was using that, and I was quite happy with it, until about 1986, when, uh, when I was, the house I was living in got hit by lightning and destroyed my system. No way. <laughs> uh, so with insurance money, I bought a... Uh, actually, I was going to buy another Commodore 128D, and, but I had these you know, reports of this you know, fantastic new computer that you know, was just blowing everything away. I waited a few months, and then 1987, I think middle of 87, I bought myself a Commodore Amiga 2000. So I never had, uh, you know, I never used, a, you know, the Amiga 500. Or, but in the states, of course, they weren't that popular. It was the big, it was the big box machines that were, were really selling. So what did you do with your Amiga 2000 when you got it? Then what was kind of your initial use of it? By that, by that time, I mean, of course, I was blown away by the graphics and the, the video and the games, uh, although I didn't play an awful lot of games. Well, I suppose I played a few. And at the time, you know, things happen in your life. You know, they just, they just seemed to, to gel together. I left the company I was working for and uh, started my own business with uh, some of my uh, former uh, colleagues. And we started a business. And, you know, like all startups, it was tough, you know, for about two years or so. We were struggling like crazy and second mortgages on the house and all those things, uh, jointly and severally liable for the company's debt if it went bust. And we, we had this joke, which we, which we used to, gallows humor, I guess. You know, one day we're going to be a millionaire. Yeah. It's got 1.1 <laughs> 1. 1 million to go. 
so um, I started using that in the business for uh, I did all of uh, I, I was tasked with doing all of the um, training manuals, uh, all the graphics work, all the publicity work, um, video work, all using my Amiga 2000 and then an Amiga 3000 and then an Amiga 4000. And I, I used I got several Amigas into the business for that work. Well, obviously, around that time, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s, like you said, it wasn't a very big platform in America. Did kind of your colleagues in that wonder, like, why aren't we using Macs to do this? Or did anyone ever question it? Well, don't forget, Macs weren't all that great. <laughs> I mean, we'll, maybe, maybe uh, today, you know, when, when history's rewritten by the victors, mm-hmm. Macs were brilliant. But, you know, the Macintosh itself didn't really equate, personally to me, to a uh, Commodore 128. <laughs> It was black and white, wasn't um, it? It was black and white, single task. Well, so was the one to eight, of course. But it, you know, it, it, the one to eight was much more fun for me, much more fun, much more open. Um, but I did have a. It was PCs that were coming to the fore, um, and PCs were starting to dominate. And of course, all my colleagues started to have PCs, and all the tech colleagues had PCs. I remember sitting in a in a place called Big Wells in the west of Texas, in the middle of nowhere, having a heated discussion friendly discussion, but fairly heated, about uh, multitasking and multimedia on the Amiga. And uh, my, my tech colleagues were, oh, multimedia, and that'll never catch on. <laughs> so it's, it's quite funny, really, Be, you know, considering that now all computers really go back to the, the, the original ideal of the, of the Commodore Pe- uh, Amiga, which was, you know, offloading all of the, the tasks from the CPU and, and creating a, a, a total multimedia experience, which, you know, back then black and white DOS, whatever that was, you know, 640K memory, you know, struggling to run anything um, other than spreadsheets and word processors. Well, obviously, around that time, the Amiga's biggest competitor was the Atari ST. Have you got much experience with that? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I was, you know, when you become, uh, obviously, I was a Commodore boy. So when you're a Commodore boy, you just bought Commodore. I mean, it was, it was PET, 64, 128, Amiga. So, uh, and living in the States, of course, the Atari ST, um, by the time I bought my Amiga, um, was on the way out. Because don't forget, I have my Commodore 128D running Geos and pretty happy with it. And so when I bought the Amiga in, what, 87, uh, the Atari was doing okay, but uh, they didn't last much longer than that, did they? So what did you think when um, Commodore went bankrupt then? Did it did it hit you pretty hard? Uh, yeah, because obviously I, <laughs> the, the joke with in my family, my kids, uh, you know, they uh, they got to use my I wouldn't say cast offs because I never threw them away, but they got to use my two thousand and I set it up for them for their schoolwork. Um, and the joke was that you know I had the Amiga four thousand, and I wanted the Amiga five thousand. You know, I had to fly, I had to do all sorts of things. So I was looking for the next Amiga, which you know I expected Commodore to bring out. So it was a it was disappointing when Com- a really disappointing when Commodore went bust. But I didn't think that the end of it because usually when a company of that size goes bust, it gets picked up, yeah. or it gets picked up by someone that wants to do something with it. Uh, and of course, the the, the, the history of uh, of the Amiga post Commodore is like a Greek tragedy. Did you um, buy into any of those kind of promises made by Ascom and the other companies? Yeah. Well, I suppose. There's a, there's a mug born every day. <laughs> I bought an Escom PC. That's my first PC. And they were around about, what, 12 more months, weren't they? That was it. <laughs> yeah. I bought a Gateway PC. There's my second PC. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, you're a curse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I thought I was helping, but I never <laughs> thought about it that way. So maybe I am the curse. Yes, it's true. I know you've got a, a pretty impressive Amiga collection these days. So um, how did you get into collecting Amigas then? Did you have a bit of a break from it and get back into it? What what happened? Um, well, I used Amigas every day. All my, I, I, you know, like like most Amigans, I'm, I, I would say I'm a typical Amiga user in that, you know, I, I, I upgraded my machines as much as I could. I converted my one of my... 4000s into a tower and you know I, I added the usual you know graphics cards power pc accelerator cards ethernet cards you know it, so it, when people talk about cost and cost of machines most of me can spend an awful lot of money on their machines because it's what you did <laughs> you wanted to keep your machine current um i always feel a little bit embarrassed when i say but but i i, I kept apart from the commodore pet which i had to sell to buy the commodore 64 Every other machine I bought after that, I kept the old one, and I just stored them away. Uh, and um, from about 2000 onwards, I, I concentrated on, on my business. We were looking to position it to sell down the road. Um, I've been in, in, in the, the oil industry for 30, you know, almost 30 years, and you know, I wanted to break from it. I wanted to do something else. I was getting bored. Um, so when we did eventually sell the business in 2004, Suddenly, I had tie on my hands, and uh, and we moved to another house, which had a basement and it was empty. And my wife said, "Well, anyway, the basement's yours. <laughs> you can't have any other of the house, but the basement's yours." So I thought, "Oh, that's pretty good. There's a lot of space in there." Uh, and so I thought, "Oh, what I'll do is I'll get those old computers out, and I'll I'll put a little racking system up, and I'll put a few computers up. I'll put a two thousand, a three thousand, a four thousand, my tower, a CD thirty two. It's a lot of space still. And then I just started collecting. I started collecting on you know, eBay and uh, uh, people would contact me and, and just sell me the whole collections. So I, I got a, a, real, a real mix of, of uh, software, hardware uh, from, from just following that route. And so it grew and it grew over a period of, and of course it's still growing of course, but uh, from 2004 onwards. I've heard stuff about your collection and that you've got a few of the things that are kind of weren't so popular at the time, like kind of a little Amiga spin-offs and, you know, small obscure projects and stuff like the iMika and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I like anything. I mean, I'm not, fortunately, I think it's probably because from about 2001 to 2004, I, I was concentrating full on my business and I didn't really take much notice of what was happening in the in the wider Amiga world at the time, although uh, I had the Amiga, I think the last Amiga magazine sort of mass circulation, if you call it that, was the Amiga Action or Active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two thousand and two, yeah. I think it was up to. So I got those, but I didn't really read them. Um, so uh, what what helped was uh, when I sort of, you know put these computers on the you know on the racking systems and whatever, I, I started going online and, and I, I found Total Amiga magazine and. They had all their back issues. So I started reading the history that I'd missed from like 2000 and up to 2004. And I read about all the, the troll, you know, the flame wars, the power struggles. The, and, and see, I'd missed all that. So I had no real angst or right anyway. So I, I just adopt, adopted and absorbed everything. Anything to me that, that was Amiga-like or Amiga was, was of interest. What would you say is the most obscure bit of hardware you've got then, or kind of the you know your uh, your prize bit of your collection? Well, I've got some really obscure um, or, or more obscure you know Commodore stuff. Some were popular in Eastern Europe. You know, you know the the, the 
the Tim range, I guess the Tim range, like the plus four, C16, the 232, the 116. There are not a lot of those around, the 116s and the 232s. Not many of them um, work, if so, do they? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I've got a Commodore 900, which was a co- runs coherent, which is like a, a Unix-type operating system. And it was Chuck Peddle's last hurrah at Commodore before. And it was going to be the replacement to the pet. And then the Amiga took off and obviously Chuck left. Uh, that's unusual. I've got a, a Commodore Max, which is the, the Japanese Commodore 64 cut down with the membrane keyboard. Uh, Commodore system, which again was an attempt to, uh, by Commodore to create a, a cartridge machine with a cut down Commodore 64. Uh, so I've got a Commodore, a couple of Commodore Pentium laptops, <laughs> which is obviously one of the offshoots of Commodore post Commodore, uh, but they're branded Commodore and they're Pentium laptops, um, which are pretty obscure really. But in terms of um, Amiga uh, unusual stuff, I probably have Almost every model that was produced, supplied, you know, or, or badged by Commodore, very often it was the same machine, but they put different labels on different badges. Um, I don't have a, a, a Amiga 3000 UX, the Linux version, but I do have the software and I do have the cartridge drive. There's a website, I think it's Secret Weapons of Commodore or something it's called, and you, you look at all the, the list, all the unreleased prototypes, and there are like... There are hundreds and thousands oh, wow. of them. There's so many. Yeah, well, well, one thing, when you start talking to the Commodore people, the engineers and the developers, they had a really active and, you know, talented bunch of people. And, they, I mean, they did a, a they had a, a laptop with TFT display for, you know, it was never released, but they had working prototypes of that. When you speak to um, some of the engineers that turn up at uh, AmiWest, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the lady's name. Um, for some reason, I can't remember um, she was working on some really uh, exciting stuff with CD, CD32 and FMV, FMV uh, type um, films and, 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 and hardware, which never made it because Commodore went bust. People might be amazed that there's an Amiga magazine still out, and that's called Amiga Future, and you've actually done some retrospective columns for it? Yeah, well, it's just, again, it's funny how I think it's, there's these coincidences, coincidences that happen in life. Um how on earth did I get to know to meet uh, Robert Williams? Somehow, oh, I must have met them at a, a big bash up in Peterborough, the first uh, sort of post-Commodore event I'd been to, probably in, in 1997 or 98, something like that. And and uh, I think I met Robert there, and I just got talking to him, and um, somehow we just hit it off. And we used to have sort of Amiga days, and they come to my place, and uh, Robert, uh, Mick Sutton, and uh, one other guy and we just tear hardware apart build stuff up have fun have a few drinks a bite to eat and, and that was it eventually i said to, to robert uh, how about i write about some of these machines i've got you know and he said yeah that might be a good idea you know i said they're also gonna someone to fill the magazine because what happens what happened with robert is that he'd end up writing most of it because so it always happens when you get something going on. One person does most of the work, uh, despite the best you know, efforts of everyone else. Someone's got to pull it all together. So for someone else writing, he was quite pleased. So it kind of morphed from let's write about machines to oh, let's write about the history of Commodore and you know the rise and fall of Commodore, and then it turned into well, let's write about the Amiga and all things that means about the Amiga. You know, what what is the Amiga to everyone? So it turned into a 20-episode 20, uh, 20 <laughs> uh, 
uh, tome. Um, but the first three were in Total Omega, and they then, um, Robert decided that he, he was taking up his life and he needed to, you know, actually progress his career and his education. So they sold, not the rights, but they sold their sort of database to uh, Amiga Future. And Amiga Future initially weren't going to produce an English language magazine and and they didn't need any 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 continuation of the of the Amiga retrospective series. So for a few issues, uh, there was no more a retrospective. But then I picked it up again when uh, Andreas at uh, retrospective contact, Amiga Future contacted me and uh, I started the series again. So episode four started in Amiga Future and ran to episode 20, <laughs> which was by that time, episode 20 was about Aeon and, and our contribution because by that time I'd... Uh, Got I got sucked into the whole, you know, post Amiga, post Commodore story, and I wanted to see uh, hardware, be, new hardware being produced for the Amiga OS. With the magazines as well, I imagine you know, there are lots of people listening who are like, "What? There's still Amiga magazines going now?" I mean, we'll put links in the show notes if people want to find them. But it comes out. What is it like every two months? Is it? It's released. Yeah, Amiga Future is is uh, it's 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 a German magazine. The, it's printed in German and English. So if one thing that's nice is that um, uh, we tend to share in the Amiga community. So you get lots of um, um, sort of benefits from, from one to the other. Uh, I, I'm gonna, now I'll get this wrong because I don't speak French very well. So Obligement, the uh, oh, yeah. online French Amiga uh, website, they've st- just started translating my uh, um, classic reflections we talked about Amiga Retrospective running for 20 issues. I've been since writing one called Classic Reflections, which looks at the company and, and people who made contributions to the Amiga's uh, growth and development and success. And that's now up, up at something like 24 issue editions of that, 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 uh, uh, that, that article. And so they're starting to translate that into French and, and put it onto their website. So gold discs already up and electronic arts, just my, my uh, article about electronic arts just gone up on their website in French for French readers. But what's good about Obligement is they have this sort of um, quick translation. I mean, it's not great, but you click on the the icon, uh, English or German or Spanish, it'll give you a translation of the article. Yeah, like the Google Translate thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, it's, so it's pretty good. So it does mean they get a lot more people get the chance to read it. And I find it's great that it comes with a CD-ROM still. Yeah. You know, that's what I love, that kind of one oh, feature. Oh, yeah, the Amiga, Amiga Future comes with a CD. Well, you don't have to have the CD-ROM, uh, but you, you, the, 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 a version does come with the CD-ROM. Yeah, so it's been running longer than the Amiga format, and it comes with the CD-ROM. What's that like? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Did you used to read, like, the Amiga mags back in the day religiously? Oh, I, yeah. I Well, uh, Amiga World in the States, when I live in the States, um, Amiga Computing as well. Uh, but when I came to the UK, I, I, uh, I, I was Amiga, Amiga format, Commodore user Amiga. I always got those. Occasionally picked up um, some of the other Amiga magazines, but I wasn't really into the sort of just pure gaming. I, I really liked Amiga Shopper, uh, Future Publishing's kind of technical uh, Amiga format magazine. And that was a really good, a lot more technical and a lot less games. But yeah, so I had masses of Amiga magazines, which unfortunately I threw away. Well, um, one thing that happened in the UK was when the Amiga was dying, we had a group called iTech that were kind of keeping the Amiga going. And uh, that stock eventually got bought by your friend's Amiga kit. Oh, you're talking about iTech? Oh, that's, well, that's, 
again, little coincidences, my, my latest two articles for Amiga Future magazine are on iTech, ah. <laughs> on the compu- contribution of Alan Redhouse and iTech. And, and uh, it's quite interesting because what a lot of people don't know is that uh, iTech, uh, you know, Amiga Kit announced they bought most of iTech stock in, towards the end of 2006. But what most people don't know is that iTech sold that to Amiga Kit in 2005, late 2005. And, it, and it, when you look at the, uh, again, if you look at, if you read the, the articles, it gives you a lot more depth and detail. But for the financial year ending March 2006, iTech's turnover was £9,000. So they'd gone out of the business way before. They'd obviously decided that they had enough, or Alan, Alan Redhouse had decided they had enough. Their best year was the March 31st, 2000, uh, sorry, 1999. After that, it went down. Well, yeah, the thing with iTech was they were producing hardware, but they were also a really powerful retailer. They were a massive retailer. They were definitely, I call it the do-it-yourself Amiga. They were into the, the tower up because there was no one supporting the Amiga. The companies that came in, you know, Escom and Gateway did nothing really. I mean, despite all the plans and talk, nothing really happened. So it was left to companies like iTech to create uh, tower conversion kits for all the Amigans out there who wanted to upgrade their systems and, and you know, maintain their systems and, and keep up to date. I do remember lots of people used to do that, didn't they? They'd get their standard Amiga 1200 computer, transplant the motherboard into like a DIY tower case so you could do loads more expansion and add graphics cards and all that. It was crazy. I mean, I, I've, I've got several of them, right? And what, what you do, you take the, not even the motherboard, you take the Amiga 1200, take the top off, and you leave in the case, and you slide it in. <laughs> <laughs> like a Frankenstein. <laughs> it's definitely a Frankenstein's monster. Uh, so if you want to find out more about it, I, I, I recommend I mean, the, the, the listeners, uh, read, read Amiga Future. It's a good magazine. It gives you everything about Amiga, all all modern Amiga stuff, classic Amiga stuff, anything to do with Amiga, any flavor, you know, FPGAs, emulation. It's, it's, I sound like a salesman now for Amiga <laughs> Future. I don't get paid anything, but I just want to see it continue. Well, what amazed me was um, having an Amiga retailer, amigakit.co.uk, suddenly appear online with all this stock and also a company emerged called Aeon that was uh, doing hardware. Oh, yeah, well... They're not related, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, Matthew Lehman of uh, Amiga Kit had, had started his business before then. Uh, he is a he is an IT guy. I mean, he worked in IT. He went to university, did a degree in IT. Uh, so you know, it, it, he's it's not surprising that he wanted to follow um, a career in IT. It's just it's very surprising that he makes his livelihood from just supporting Amiga. It's amazing you know, that you could still make a, a living out of supporting Amiga these days. And I would say he's probably one of the only one one of the only Amiga retailers in the world that does that. Everyone else are bedroom suppliers. You know, m- maybe Vasalia in Germany aren't, but most of them are. It's just a side issue, and they do it in their spare time. And that's why you see a lot of Amiga retailers come and go because they're not really retailers. They get a bunch of stock of something, they sell it and disappear. They don't offer the support or the service, uh, and uh, that's one of the things that. Um, that um, you know certainly do. So, so obviously, getting the the iTech stock you know, really gave me a kid a boost. And if you look down in their warehouse now, and I'm in their offices at the moment, <laughs> they've got some exciting stuff. I was going to say I you're took... calling us from there now, aren't you? It must be like a yeah, little cave in that because I, 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 uh, I you know, I'm over from New Zealand. Uh, uh, I'm jet lagged uh, a little bit, um, but um, uh, it, 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 I was. <sighs> 
I was actually, it's like a, it's like an Aladdin's cave. I was going taking photographs today because I couldn't find a photograph of iTech's um, Mark V case on the web. There's only one very poor, small, low resolution, terrible quality photograph on the big book of Amiga hardware. And I found he's got about half a dozen of them, brand new Mark V cases. <laughs> so I got some nice pictures today, uh, and I've, uh, I've I've sent them over to uh, Amiga F- uh, Future for the next article to, to go with the other pictures I've sent. So so that's you know, the sort of things you find out. But there is a link to, to Amiga Kit because I no intention of getting involved in Amiga hardware. I mean, there were no, there was no Amiga hardware, and. Uh, when I met up with Michael Batalano, he was obviously pushing uh, his emulation, and um, I got involved a little bit with that. I helped fund uh, some of the developments there, and he was going on a trip around Europe, uh, Belgium and Holland, uh, and he's going to see Commodore Gaming, which was a new gaming company that was formed with those you know really, uh, I'll say, sexy towers. Yeah, I've, really I've got one of those. <laughs> Yeah, they're really nice, aren't they? Yeah, very nice cases. But they were just the really high-powered gaming system, PC gaming systems. So we went, we went over to uh, uh, Holland and went to, went to see their, them, and uh, we went through because you know when you get to mainland Europe, you realise how close everything is together. So we just popped over to Belgium. We met up with uh, Ben Hermans and Evert Carton, who Evert was uh, with Hyperion at the time, and they were both miserable uh, because they just received notice that day they were going to get sued by Amiga Inc. So um, <laughs> I made the foolish suggestion, or I said offer. I said, well, look, you need any help, just you know, give me a shout. Maybe I can help out. And that's how the link started. Several years later, two or three years later, um, Hyperion, or Ben Hermans, who's the, who was the managing partner of Hyperion, uh, came up with the idea of um, uh, creating a, a next generation, you know, a top line next generation machine for uh, Power PC based for Amiga OS, for Amiga OS 4. And they had the license from Amiga Inc. for Amiga OS 4 and the Amiga 1 name uh, for next generation Amigas based on PowerPC. There will be people listening to this now who maybe are not that familiar with the Amiga scene and think it's just a retro platform. But, you know, as you mentioned then, the Amiga operating system workbench is still being developed. There are new bits of hardware you can run this on. How could you kind of summarize that for people that might not know anything about it at all? And what whereabouts are we right now? The first thing is to say that, I mean, by no means, let's not pretend it's not the old Amiga and it doesn't have the support and service of, of, you know, the Amiga's heyday. But the Amiga operating system is one of the longest developed operating systems in the world. It probably predates Windows and it's still developed. It's owned and developed by Hyperion Entertainment. They have some full-time employees, but not many. And most of it becomes a community effort of developers, um, you know, talented developers, who do it in their spare time for basically no money. Uh, so it's not quite like uh, Linux, where you know, you've got um, maybe hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of developers. You've got a lot less than that. And it's the same with all of the meager offshoots, uh, Amiga-like offshoots like uh, Morph OS. And they're all talented guys doing it in their spare time. Uh, and the various Aeros guys who, who create Amiga-like operating systems can do it in their spare time. So that's the software side. Hardware side, iTech, you mentioned iTech. iTech were, you know, one of the leading UK and became the leading UK Amiga retailer, stroke, retailer stroke developer. And then them were the company behind really the... Um, Amiga One, 
next generation PowerPC based systems. Uh, in fact, without their support and funding, in fact, without their funding, there would have been no Amiga 1 and there'd have been no Amiga OS 4 because they kept it all going because um, Amiga Inc. had no money. So it was iTech that were paying for it and it was actually out of Alan Redhouse's own pocket. I think uh, um, with, with Amiga OS 4, there's so many different formats that you can view it on now and the ways that you can use it. When it first came out, it was only these really expensive accelerator cards mm. that you could view it on. But now, you know, you can use Amiga OS 4 Classic, you can use the modern version, you can do it in WinUAE. There's so many ways that you can use Amiga OS. If you're a, a dedicated vegan like me, you want to use it on hardware that is... It feels like you're using Amiga. Uh, one thing about emulation is, although it's really good, you know, you're still on, it's still emulation, um, and you f you feel the underlying uh, operating system controlling everything, which is good actually because it means you don't have to write any drivers <laughs> and everything works. <laughs> so that's good. Um, uh, obviously, uh, we Aeon uh, creates, uh, designs, develops, or has de designed for them bespoke motherboards. We're not talking about reference boards from you know a company. We're designing motherboards from scratch to run Amiga OS. And, and obviously, we'd like to extend that to markets like Linux because, you know, if you can sell more boards to the Linux market, you can help support the Amiga OS market. And I'm quite happy for boards to run uh, Eros or, or Morphos. It's, it's really good. Anything that keeps, you know, people buying the, the boards so we can produce more of them and, and keep the development going. Well, these boards are also a piece of art because what you have on them is aspects of the original kind of uh, Amiga things harking back to them, oh, so signatures things, and yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing Commodore did, they, 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 on their boards they put um, their little gimmicks, little, little, little sneaky little things they put on the boards as they did in the, in the software, in the operating system but uh, one of the things they did was they put a 52 song on each of their boards, most of their boards mm -hmm. um, so we've continued that tradition and so our, our first board was the Nemo motherboard and uh, that had to keep this keep this party going. The X5000, which is, uh, I can say it's coming out at Whammy West because I presume this is not going to be. When will this be? Uh, uh, On Friday. Episode. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Okay. Well, the X5000 has got uh, breezing. On the motherboard, uh, and the the table motherboard, which is for the A1222, uh, has topaz, which is so right on so many levels. You know, topaz being an Amiga original Amiga font and also a, a B52 song title. And the good thing is, there's a lot more B52 song titles out there. <laughs> well, it's, it's a testament to how much of an Amiga fan you are, Trevor. The fact that you actually went out there and thought, right, you know, there are no machines to run this next generation operating system at the moment. I'm going to build my own. Yeah, sometimes you things that are silly, right? <laughs> um, I wanted the Amiga 5000. Okay, it became the Amiga One X One Thousand, but uh, I wanted a new. I wanted a new board. How we got how we got out the door, I don't know. If you knew the the real story behind it all, <laughs> you'd shudder. <laughs> but we managed to produce a, a, a machine that was you know has, has been reliable, had very few returns um, for repair, and and uh, you know I would say the vast majority of people who got them really like. Um, the X5000 has taken longer to come out than, than I would have wanted. And if I took you in a room in this building, you'll see it's floor to ceiling with X5000 boards in it. Nice. <laughs> um, so we're definitely ready to start selling them. Uh, but for a number of reasons, there was a delay on, uh, on getting it to the market. 
but I'm really pleased with uh, the system that's going out. We're calling it, when we our first X1000s are released, I really should say Amiga 1 X1000s, because that's what they are. Uh, that was called First Contact, keeping on to the space theme, because when we announced the original machine coming out in 2010 or being developed, well, it was um, 2010, the year we came back, which is very space, very space odyssey, the movie. This one's called Close Encounters. <laughs> the initial board coming out will be Close Encounters, and um, that comes out, it'll be announced at Amherst. Well, so uh, you heard it here first. Hey, well, one thing that's really nice about the boards as well is that you've got the last PowerPC developed chips by Apple Macintosh in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you manage yeah. to score well, that? It's, it's kind of strange, isn't it? There's a, there's a story behind that. Eventually, we signed up a deal with Apple for, a, I don't know, 1,700, 2,000 CPUs for the first batch. Uh, it wasn't Apple, it was with PA Semi. And then we before we started the work, Apple bought PA Semi, and they bought them from their, their low-power chip designs, um, not for their PA Semi CPUs, but the, for their low-power chip design. So um, it looked like it was, you know, Apple didn't want to sell units to us. Uh, they, want, they didn't want to be in the business. And they said, well, look, you can have them, but you've got to take them all now because we had a deal with uh, PA Semi where we had 30 days credit and we could order, in, order them in batches. But suddenly Apple said, okay, no, you've got to buy 1700 now and it'll cost you $500 each. If you want them, that's, that's the deal. So uh, it was a bit tough. So uh, although we could say they were Apple chips, they were really PA Semi. Fortunately, Paul Gentle, the, the MD of Varisys, who, who are designers, uh, wrote to Apple and said, look, you know, we, this, is, this is important for the company. You know, we need to build these, these systems. We've got the prototypes through. Uh, please, can you reverse your decision? Can you sell us some of the chips? And he got a reply from Steve Jobs himself saying, sorry. Wow. That was it. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> One word. <laughs> yeah. So he, so he wrote to him again, a big, long email. You know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, know you must appreciate as a developer yourself, you know, that, you know, we, the effort we put into this, blood, sweat and tears, blah, blah, blah. Please, can you? And he got a longer reply this time saying, uh, which basically said, okay, sorry. But if your business depends on these chips, then you've got the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> but two weeks later, PA Semi via Apple and you know, started supplying us with chips. Didn't mince his word, Steve Jobs, did he? No. <laughs> so I like I would like to think that Steve Jobs maybe had an input there, but who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, your next machine you mentioned is the X five thousand and uh, Tabor, your other one as well. So Ami West is this like big show that happens in America every year, which is coming up where these are going to be launched. What's new about these systems then? What's different about these ones compared to the last one? Okay, well, the uh, Amiga 1 X1000 was, was obviously uh, based on a PA Semi chip, uh, dual core. Um, it was supposed to be 2 gigahertz, but uh, PA Semi only uh, rated their CPUs to 1.8. So really, if you, if you know the story of the X1000, uh, we paid $500 for the first CPUs. We paid $950 for the next batch. Uh, and we ate the cost on those, and we paid $600 for the last batch. Uh, so that, I mean, we were buying them from um, storehouses that bought from Apple en masse, and we're just keeping them uh, stockpiled for military and uh, industrial use, because that's who, who used the, the chips, because of the low power consumption, the low heat generation, and, you know, quite a powerful chip. Um, so we looked for a replacement for the 
to the, the, the NEMO motherboard, which powers the Amiga 1X1000. And we looked at Freescale, so mainly because they have a 10-year life cycle on their support cycle on their chips. Um, and we wanted something that wasn't going to be bought by Apple and shut down tomorrow. Uh, so it was really the X the X five thousand was really a replacement for the X one thousand. We actually thought we would, would build three models based on the same board, a much smaller board, and to keep the cost down, three CPUs all using the same board, uh, a fifty forty, a fifty twenty, and a P three o four one. But when it came down to it, we couldn't make them any cheaper. Uh, the three o four one was almost the same price as a fifty twenty. But we also wanted to try and create a really low cost, in terms of Amiga terms, entry-level system. Uh, and that's where Tabor came about. And that's, so that's now based on a P1022, which is a 1.2 gigahertz dual-core chip. And um, that's coming along quite nicely. When can we expect that release then? Well, it's already with beta testers. Uh, the beta testers have it, uh, are using uh, various Linux distributions on it. Uh, and I actually, when I was in Adelaide, I got to play one myself for the first time, uh, running, um, I was playing 3D games on it, and, um, Super Tux Cart and things like that. So it's definitely powerful enough for, for, for what we need it for. Um, not giving any secret way to say that, um, that Hyperion Entertainment, who, who are the developers and owners of OS4, Amiga, Amiga OS4, and now got um, OS4 booting to the workbench uh, on uh, on the table board, and and that will form the basis of our low cost entry level system, which is called the Amiga One A1222. So what might, you mentioned um, 3D gaming and stuff there as well. I mean, there might be people listening to this thinking it's really cool that it still get, still gets developed, but what do people use it for then? What are people doing with these machines? <laughs> it's a difficult, it's a very difficult question to answer, really. I don't know. I think they used to, used to. I think people like to be different, and they like to um, do their own thing. And, you know, march to a different drum, not follow the masses. And I think that a lot of uh, our customers and users, uh, and I would say myself, like to like to be just follow a different different track, different path. Why? 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 Just because everyone uses something, that's the way you should do it. Um, what did the Apple say? Think differently, uh, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember. I, ne- I was never really an Apple follower because I was Commodore, of course. Well, uh, <laughs> um, sorry. One thing we've noticed is that you guys have started obtaining rights to some of the older legacy software and updating uh, yeah. it for modern day. Uh, yeah. Such big brands as P Paint and uh, Optimed. Well, in fact, in, in in my hand here now, I have a, a nice packed um, CD with P Paint on it. Which is which is just going on, on on for sale. Of course, you can download it via Ami Store, which is our uh, which is our uh, on computer store rather than online store. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, over the last uh, eighteen months, about eighteen months ago, two years ago, we started acquiring some of the cla- you know the, the big classic titles. Uh, Personal Paint was one. Um, Aladdin uh, was another. Aladdin 4D. Um, image FX, one of my favorites, another one. Uh, and um, we've been acquiring those titles with the aim of creating the next level, you know, the next minimal viable product as, a, as a, an update. So P Paint was the first one. Uh, but at the same time, we've been, we, I think about two years ago at AmiWest, I announced that, you know, with all the hardware coming through, I was happy with that. 
but we needed content, we needed software content. So I think I said content, 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 and it's true, we need more software. So over the last 18 months, we've been building up a, a, a small team of developers, probably over 20 now, who are working on various apps, upgrades and developments. And these, uh, the first to benefit from that was our enhanced software pack, which brings a lot of um, modern features to Amiga OS and a, and a lot, lot of um, um, added applications. And that's now at version 1.1 and we're working on version 1.2. Uh, but we're also working on a number of other uh, software applications you know, for the Amiga OS. And you also bring these out on the old Commodore Amigas as well, don't you? Well, that's a good thing. And one of the things I'm going to be announcing at AmiWest is that we're bringing out the, uh, uh, in the enhanced software packs for, I quite like that because I can call it ESP. Uh, <laughs> but the enhanced software pack is the PowerPC version. Uh, and we're bringing out the 68K version. I don't know whether to call it Classic Amiga because that was a terminology that was invented during gateway days to differentiate between the, the Amiga and these PCs they were going to produce. So, you know, classic has its has a, a connotation to me. So I like to call them 68K Amigas. So we're doing that. Well, uh, one final question, Trevor, and we really admire your dedication. Uh, what makes it all worth it? Well, in my real life, <laughs> I say that, you know, I'm, I'm not being funny. In my real life, I'm a business angel. And I get to work with lots of smart young people, mainly young people, but it's it's all walks of life really that get get, that get involved in startups. But I, I get to work with lots of smart young people, great ideas, you know, and uh, that's what I do on a daily basis. So this for me is is relaxation. I find it really, you know, I'm actually quite proud that I'm involved in Amiga OS and uh, and and Amiga ones. And I'm continuing the the legacy of the Amiga. For me, it's a uh, it's, it's a hobby, a very expensive hobby, <laughs> uh, but I feel a sense of achievement, you know, a, a personal sense of achievement that I've been involved in helping to continue the legacy of the Amiga. And if you've been at uh, the um, Amiga 30th event last year in in California at the Computer History Museum, and I got to sit at a table with um, about a dozen original High Toro and Amiga employees from secretaries, engineers, you know, the sales and marketing guy, the, the commercial guy, all around the table, uh, and, and we were just chatting and talking. And then, then they played during dinner in the evening uh, Viva Amiga movie. They were all in tears. <laughs> and, uh, and then afterwards they came up to me after seeing an Amiga, one, an Amiga 1X1000 and an Amiga 1X5000 on display at the show running various, you know, demos and videos they said we can't believe this is still alive and what you've done with it thank you so i I was amazed that they were thanking me for continuing the legacy so to me that was a reward in itself um because usually it's us thanking them for actually giving us a legacy in the first place that's amazing oh trevor long may it continue as well well fingers crossed and if people want to keep up to date with them, what you're up to is, what, what, is there any websites or Facebook and that they can check out? Yeah, um, Aeon have a, have a fairly active Facebook page, which they posted to, and obviously Twitter, if you're into Twitter. Um, their website is also, um, uh, you, you know, you can find it, www.aeon.com, um, a-eon.com, sorry. Um, and there's information on there. They've also got a very active, we've also got a very active wiki page, 
which uh, it provides a lot of information about our hardware and what we're doing. So um, just I, I'd expect to see more software coming out. Uh, this hardware being um, obviously the X5000 coming out and the Tabor next year. That's what I want to see. And, and of course, we haven't stopped. As I say, there's a lot of B52 song titles left <laughs> and characters and characters are, are in Jules Verne's Mysterious Island. And uh, don't forget to check out Trevor's blog as well. You can find a link on Amiga.org. Oh, yeah, I do a blog. It, it's Trevor. It's, it's Amiga blog, but to be honest, it, I cover most things Amiga, but I do throw other things in from time to time. And you can always find Trevor at Amiga shows all around the world as well. He's always there in his, uh, his boy and ball uh, shoes can, and tie. <laughs> you can always find me, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what's great. I mean, fortunately, I, I, have to, I have to travel around the world for various businesses anyway, so when I do, I always try to find local Amiga shows or events that are going on. Um, and then this last, actually, two weeks, Adelaide, uh, uh, Lincoln, and then the weekend, uh, Sacramento. So just covered the world go to Amiga shows it's great fun yeah, I was going to say how many times have you been drunk with us <laughs> it's been a <laughs> great fun uh, what happens at Amiga shows stays at Amiga shows <laughs> well Trevor it's been a pleasure catching up with you again it's always nice to talk Amiga with you okay let's keep this party going eh? your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.